Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Hauler by Guy de Maupassant Translated by Charlotte Mandel May the 8th. What a wonderful day! I spent all morning stretched out on the grass in front of my house, beneath the huge plane tree that completely covers, shelters and shades the lawn. I love the country here, and I love living here because this is where I have my roots, those profound and delicate roots that attach a man to the land where his ancestors were born and died, and that attach him to what one should think and what one should eat, to customs as well as to foods, to local idioms and peasant intonations, to the smells of the earth, of the villages, of the air itself. I love my house. I grew up in it. From my windows I can see the Seine flowing along the whole length of my garden, behind the road, almost in my backyard, the great wide Seine, which goes from Rouen to Le Havre, covered with boats passing by. To the left, over there, Rouen, the vast blue-roofed city beneath the peaked crowd of Gothic bell towers. They are countless, slender or broad, dominated by the iron spire of the cathedral, and full of bells that ring in the blue air on fine mornings, carrying towards me their gentle, distant metal drone, their bronze song the breeze carries to me, now stronger, now weaker, depending on whether the wind is awakening or growing drowsy. How fine it was this morning. Around eleven o'clock, a long procession of ships pulled by a tugboat, fat as a fly, groaning from the effort and vomiting a thick plume of smoke, filed past my gate. After two English schooners, whose red flags rippled on the sky, came a superb Brazilian three-master, all white, admirably clean and gleaming. I saluted it. I don't know why. It made me so happy to see this ship. May the 11th. I've been a little feverish for a few days now. I feel unwell. Or rather, I feel sad. Where do these mysterious influences come from that change our happiness into despondency and our confidence into distress? You might say that the air, the invisible air, is full of unknowable powers from whose mysterious closeness we suffer. I wake up full of joy with songs welling up in my throat. Why? I go down to the water and suddenly, after a short walk, I come back disheartened, as if some misfortune were awaiting me at home. Why? Is it a shiver of cold that brushing against my skin has affected my nerves and darkened my soul? Or is it the shape of the clouds or the colour of the daylight, the colour of things, so changeable that in passing in front of my eyes has disturbed my thoughts? How can we know? Everything that surrounds us, everything we see without looking at it, everything we brush against without recognizing it, everything we touch without feeling it, everything we encounter without discerning it, everything has on us, on our organs and through them, on our ideas, on our heart itself, swift, surprising and inexplicable effects. How profound this mystery of the invisible is. We cannot fathom it with our wretched senses with our eyes that don't know how to perceive either the too small or the too big, the too close or the too far, the inhabitants of a star or the inhabitants of a drop of water, with our ears that deceive us, 
for they transmit to us the vibrations of the air as ringing tones. They are fairies that perform the miracle of changing this movement into a sound, and by this metamorphosis give birth to music, which makes the mute agitation of nature into a song. With our sense of smell weaker than a dog's, with our sense of taste, which can scarcely tell the age of a wine. If only we had other organs that could work other miracles for us, how many things we would then discover around us. May 16th. I'm sick, no doubt about it. And I was feeling so healthy last month. I have a fever, a terrible fever, or rather a feverish nervous exhaustion, which makes my soul as sick as my body. I keep having this terrifying feeling of some danger threatening, this apprehension of a misfortune on the way, or of death approaching. This premonition that must be the onset of a sickness still unknown, germinating in the blood and the flesh. May the 18th. I've just gone to consult my doctor since I could no longer sleep. He found my pulse was rapid, my eyes dilated, my nerves vibrating, but without any alarming symptom. I must submit to taking showers and drinking potassium bromide. May 25th. No change. Really, I'm in a strange condition. As evening approaches, an incomprehensible anxiety invades me, as if night hid a terrible threat for me. I dine quickly, then I try to read, but I do not understand the words. I can scarcely make out the letters. Then I walk back and forth in my living room, under the oppression of a confused and irresistible fear, the fear of sleep and fear of my bed. Around ten o'clock I climb up to my bedroom. As soon as I'm inside I turn the key twice and bolt the locks. I'm afraid. Of what? I never feared anything till now. I open my wardrobes, look under the bed, listen, listen. For what? Is it strange that a simple illness... A circulatory disorder, perhaps, an irritated nerve ending, a little congestion, a tiny perturbation in the all-too-imperfect and delicate functioning of our living mechanism can turn the happiest of men into a melancholic and the bravest into a coward. Then I go to bed and I wait for sleep like someone waiting for the executioner. I wait for it with terror at its arrival and my heart beats, my legs tremble, and my whole body trembles in the warmth of the bedclothes till the moment I suddenly fall into repose, the way one drowns oneself, dropping into an abyss of stagnant water. I don't feel it coming as I used to, this treacherous sleep hidden beside me that lies in wait for me, that is about to seize me by the head, close my eyes, annihilate me. I sleep, for a long time, two or three hours, then a dream, no, a nightmare grips me. I'm fully aware that I'm lying down and sleeping. I feel it and I know it, and I also feel that someone is approaching me, looking at me, feeling me. He's climbing into my bed, kneeling on my chest, taking my neck in his hands and squeezing, squeezing with all his strength to strangle me. And I struggle with myself, bound by the atrocious powerlessness that paralyzes us in dreams. I want to cry out. I cannot. I want to move. I cannot. I try, with terrible efforts, gasping for breath, to turn over, to throw off this being that is crushing me and suffocating me. I can't. And all of a sudden I wake up panic-stricken, covered with sweat. I light a candle. 
I am alone. After this crisis, which is renewed every night, I finally sleep calmly until dawn. June 2nd. My condition has become even worse. What do I have? The bromide does nothing for it. The showers do nothing. This afternoon, in order to tire out my body, which was weary to begin with, I went to the forest of Rumer for a walk. First I thought that the fresh air, gentle and sweet, full of the fragrance of grass and leaves, would imbue my veins with a new blood, my heart with a new energy. I took a broad avenue we used for hunting, then turned towards La Bouille by a narrow path between two armies of unusually tall trees that set a thick, green, almost black roof between the sky and me. Suddenly I was seized by a shiver, but not of cold, a strange shiver of anxiety. I quickened my step, uneasy at being alone in this wood, frightened for no reason, stupid, because of the profound solitude. All of a sudden it seemed to me I was being followed, that someone was walking just behind me, very close, very close, close enough to touch me. I turned around suddenly. I was alone. Behind me I saw only the straight, wide lane, empty, high, terribly empty and in the other direction it also stretched away out of sight exactly the same. Terrifying. I closed my eyes. Why? And I began to spin on one heel very quickly like a top. I almost fell. I opened my eyes again. The trees were dancing. The earth was floating. I had to sit down, and then I no longer knew how I'd gotten there. Strange idea. Strange. Strange idea. I didn't know any more. I left by the path that was at my right and I returned to the avenue that had brought me to the middle of the forest. June the 3rd. The night was horrible. I'm going to go away for a few weeks. A little journey will surely set me to rights. July the 2nd. I have returned. I am cured. And I've had a delightful excursion too. I visited Mont Saint-Michel, which I'd never seen before. What a vision! When you arrive, as I did in Avranche, towards the end of the day, the city is on a hill, and I was led into the public garden on the edge of the city. I let out a cry of astonishment. A vast bay stretched out in front of me as far as the eye could see, between two coasts far apart from each other, disappearing in the distance into the mist. And in the middle of this immense yellow bay, beneath a luminous golden sky, there rose up, dark and sharp-pointed, a strange mountain, in the middle of the sands. The sun had just disappeared, and on the still-blazing horizon the outline of this fantastic rock stood out, bearing on its summit a fantastic monument. At dawn I went towards it. The sea was low, as it had been the night before, and I watched the surprising abbey rise before me as I approached it. After several hours of walking, I reached the massive hill of stones that supports this little city dominated by the great church. After climbing the narrow steep street, I entered the most wonderful Gothic dwelling built for God on earth, vast as a city full of low chambers crushed beneath vaults and high galleries supported by frail columns. I entered this giant granite jewel, light as lace, covered with towers and slim pinnacles in which winding staircases rise up and which hurl into the blue sky of the day and the dark sky of night, their strange heads bristling with chimeras, devils, fantastic animals, monstrous flowers, and which are linked to each other by slender, finely carved arches. When I was at the summit, I said to the monk who was with me, Father, how happy you must be to be here. 
He answered, and it is very windy, monsieur, and we set to talking as we watched the sea rise as it came running onto the sand and covering it with a breastplate of steel. And the monk told me stories, all the old stories of this place, legends, always more legends. One of them particularly struck me. The local people, the ones who live on the hill, claim they hear voices at night in the sands. They say they hear two goats bleating, one with a strong voice, the other with a feeble voice. Scoffers assert they're the cries of seabirds, which sometimes resemble bleating, and sometimes human moans. But late-night fishermen swear they've seen, roaming about on the dunes, between the two tides, around a little town cast so far from the world, an old shepherd, whose head, covered with his cloak, could never be seen, and who led, walking in front of them, a billy goat with a man's face, and a nanny goat with a woman's face, both with long white hair, talking ceaselessly, arguing with each other in an unknown language, then suddenly stopping to bleat with all their might. I said to the monk, Do you believe this? He murmured. I don't know. I said, If other beings beside us exist on earth, why didn't we meet them a long time ago? Why haven't you yourself seen them? Why haven't I seen them myself? He replied, Do we see the hundred thousandth part of what exists? Look, here is the wind, which is the strongest force in nature, which knocks men down, destroys buildings, uproots trees, whips up the sea into mountains of water, destroys cliffs and throws great ships onto the shoals. Here is the wind that kills, whistles, groans, howls. Have you ever seen it? And can you see it? Yet, it exists. I fell silent before this simple reasoning. This man was a wise man, or perhaps an idiot. I wasn't able rightly to tell, but I fell silent. What he said then, I had often thought. July the 3rd, I slept badly. There must indeed be a feverish influence here, for my coachman suffers from the same illness as I do. When I returned yesterday, I noticed his unusual pallor. I asked him, What's wrong with you, Jean? I can no longer rest, monsieur. My nights are eating up my days since monsieur left. That's what's been sticking to me like a curse. The other servants are doing well, though, but I'm very afraid of a relapse. July the 4th. Without doubt, I've caught it again. My old nightmares are coming back. Last night I felt someone squatting over me who, with his mouth over mine, was drinking in my life through his lips. Yes, he was sucking it in from my throat just like a leech. Then he rose, sated, and I woke up so wounded, broken and annihilated, that I could no longer move. If that goes on for a few more days, I will definitely go away again. July the 5th. Have I lost my reason? What I saw last night is so strange that my head spins when I think of it. As I do now, each evening I had locked my door. Then, since I was thirsty, I drank half a glass of water and I noted by chance that my carafe was full to its crystal stopper. Then I went to bed, and I fell into one of my dreadful sleeps, from which I was snatched after about two hours by an even more frightful shock. Imagine a man asleep who is being killed, and who wakes up with a knife in his lung, with a death rattle, covered in blood, who can no longer breathe, who will die, and doesn't understand why. That's what it was like. Having finally come to my senses, I was thirsty again. I lit a candle and went towards the table where my carafe was. I raised it and tipped it over my glass. Nothing poured out. It was empty. It was completely empty. 
First, I was at a complete loss. Then, all of a sudden, I experienced such a terrible emotion that I had to sit down or rather fall into a chair. Then I bounded up again to look around me. Then I sat down again, overcome with astonishment and fear before the transparent crystal. I contemplated it fixedly, trying to comprehend. My hands were trembling. Someone must have drunk this water. Who? Me? It must be me. It could only be me. So, I was a sleepwalker then, and was living without knowing it this double, mysterious life, which makes us suspect that there are two beings inside us, or that a foreign being, unknowable and invisible, animates our captive body when our soul is dulled, and our body obeys this other being as it does ourselves, or obeys it more than ourselves. Who can understand my abominable anguish? Who can understand the emotion of a man of healthy mind, wide awake, full of reason, who looks through the glass of a carafe, terrified that a little water has disappeared while he slept? And I stayed there till daylight without daring to return to my bed. July the 6th. I'm going mad. Again, someone drank the entire contents of my carafe last night, or rather I drank it. But is it me? Is it me? Who could it be? Who? Oh my God, I'm going mad. Who can save me? July the 10th. I have just carried out some surprising experiments. Without a doubt, I am mad, and, and yet. On July the 6th, before I went to bed, I placed on my table some wine, some milk, some water, some bread, and some strawberries. Someone drank, I, I drank, all the water and a little milk. They didn't touch the wine or the bread or the strawberries. On July the 7th, I repeated the same test, which gave the same result. On July the 8th, I didn't include the water and the milk. They touched nothing. Finally, on July the 9th, I put on my table just the water and the milk, taking care to wrap the carafes in pieces of white muslin and to tie down the stoppers. Then I rubbed my lips, beard and hands with graphite, and I went to bed. The invincible sleep seized me, followed soon by the atrocious awakening. I had not moved at all. My covers themselves did not have any stains. I rushed over to my table. The pieces of cloth enclosing the bottles had remained spotless. I undid the strings, quivering with fear. Someone had drunk all the water and all the milk. Oh my God, I'm going to leave soon for Paris. July the 12th, Paris. I must have lost my head those last few days. I must have been the plaything of my exhausted imagination, unless I am actually a sleepwalker, or have undergone one of those influences which have been observed, but are yet to be explained, that are called a suggestive. In any case, my panic was bordering on madness, but twenty-four hours in Paris have sufficed to restore my composure. Yesterday, after I did some shopping and paid some visits which made me enter into the mood of the fresh, invigorating air, I ended my evening at the Théâtre Français. They were performing a play by Alexandre Dumas the Younger, and that alert, powerful wit completed my cure. Solitude is indeed dangerous for working intelligence. We need to have around us people who think and speak. When we're alone for a long time, we people the void with phantoms. I came back to the hotel very happy by way of the boulevards, rubbing shoulders with the crowd I thought not without irony, and my recent terrors and surmises, when I believed, yes, I believed, an invisible being was living beneath my roof. How weak our head is, how easily alarmed it is, how quickly it wanders as soon as a little incomprehensible fact strikes us. Instead of concluding with these simple words, 
I do not understand because the cause escapes me, we immediately imagine terrifying mysteries and supernatural powers. July the 14th, Bastille Day. I walked about in the streets. I was delighted by the firecrackers and flags as a child. It's idiotic, though, to be happy on schedule on a day decreed by the government. The people are an imbecilic herd, sometimes stupidly patient and sometimes ferociously rebellious. They are told, have fun. They have fun. They are told, go fight with your neighbour. They go fight. They are told, vote for the emperor. They vote for the emperor. Then they're told, vote for the republic. And they vote for the republic. Those who run it are also fools. But instead of obeying people, they obey principles which can only be inane, impotent and false because of the very fact that they are principles, that is, ideas imagined to be definite and immutable in this world where we are sure of nothing, since light is an illusion, since sound is an illusion. July the 16th. I saw some things yesterday that troubled me very much. I was dining at my cousin's, Madame Sable, whose husband is in command of the 76 chasseurs in Limoges. I was there as a guest along with two young women, one of whom had married a doctor, Dr. Parent, who spends much of his time studying nervous illnesses and the extraordinary symptoms that experiments with hypnotism and suggestion are producing these days. He told us a great length about the incredible results obtained by English scholars and by doctors in the Nancy school. The facts he mentioned seemed to me so bizarre that I told him I didn't believe him at all. We are, he asserted, on the verge of discovering one of the most important secrets of nature. I mean, one of its most important secrets on this earth, for nature must have far more important ones up there in the stars. Ever since man has thought, ever since he has known how to speak and write his thoughts, he has felt touched by a mystery, impenetrable to his coarse and imperfect senses, and he has tried by the effort of his intelligence to compensate for the powerlessness of his organs. When this intelligence was still in its rudimentary state, this haunting by invisible phenomena took frightening forms of the most commonplace kind. Hence, popular beliefs in the supernatural were born. Legends of wandering spirits, fairies, gnomes, ghosts. I will even say the legend of God. For our concepts of the artificer creator, from whatever religion they come to us, are indeed the most mediocre inventions, the stupidest the most unacceptable ones ever to have come from the frightened brains of creatures. Nothing is truer than this saying of Voltaire's, God made man in his image, but man has returned the favour. But for a little more than a century there's been a presentiment of something new. Mesmer and a few others have put us on an unexpected track, and we have truly arrived, especially in the last four or five years, at surprising results. My cousin, also very sceptical, smiled. Dr. Parent said to her, And you want me to try to put you to sleep, madame? Yes, I'd like that very much. She sat down in an armchair and he began to look at her fixedly, hypnotizing her. I felt all of a sudden a little troubled. My heart was beating and my throat tightened. I saw madame Sable's eyes becoming heavier, her mouth clenching, her chest heaving. After ten minutes, she was asleep. Position yourself behind her, the doctor said to me. So I sat down behind her. He placed in her hands a visiting card and said to her, This is a mirror. What do you see in it? She replied, I see my cousin. What is he doing? He's twisting his moustache. And now? He's taking a photograph out of his pocket. 
What does his photographs show? Himself. It was true, and this photograph had just been delivered to me that very evening at the hotel. How is he shown in this portrait? He's standing with his hat in his hand. So she could see in this card, in this white pasteboard, as she would have seen in a mirror. The other young women, terrified, said, That's enough, enough, enough! But the doctor commanded, You will get up tomorrow at eight o'clock, then you will go find your cousin at his hotel, and you will beg him to lend you five thousand francs, which your husband asks you for, and which he needs to get from you for his next trip. Then he woke her up. As I was returning to the hotel, I thought about this curious seance, and I began to be assailed by doubts, not about the absolute, unquestionable good faith of my cousin, whom I have known like my sister since childhood, but about the possible trickery of the doctor. Might he not have been hiding a mirror in his hand, which he was showing to the young woman asleep at the same time as his visiting card? Professional magicians are known to do even more unusual things. I returned then and went to bed. This morning, around 8.30, I was awakened by my valet, who said to me, Madame Sable is here, asking to speak to Monsieur right away. I dressed myself in haste and invited her in. She sat down, very agitated, her eyes lowered, and without raising her veil, she said to me, My dear cousin, I have a great favour to ask you. What is it, cousin? It embarrasses me very much to tell you, but I must. I am in need, in dire need, of uh, five thousand francs. Really? You? Yes, me, or, or, or rather my husband, who has asked me to get them. I was so stupefied that I stammered out my replies. I wondered if she and Dr. Parent weren't making fun of me, if this weren't simply a farce prepared in advance and very well played. But as I looked at her attentively, all my doubts disappeared. She was trembling with anxiety, so painful was this task to her, and I could tell that her throat was choking with sobs. I knew she was very wealthy, and I continued, But doesn't your husband have five thousand francs at his disposal? Think about it. Are you really sure he told you to ask me for them? She hesitated for a few seconds, as if she were making a great effort to search through her memory, then replied, Yes, yes, I, I'm, I'm sure. He wrote to you? She hesitated again, thinking. I could see how hard it was for her to think. She didn't know, she just knew that she had to borrow five thousand francs from me for her husband. So she dared to lie. Yes, he wrote to me. When? You never mentioned it to me yesterday. I only received his letter this morning. Can you show it to me? No, 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 it contained private matters. Too personal. I, I burned it. So, your husband has debts then? She hesitated again, then murmured. I don't know. I stated flatly. The fact is, I can't give you five thousand francs right now, my dear cousin. She let out a sort of cry of anguish. Oh, I implore you, I implore you, find them. She became distraught, joining her hands together as if she were praying to me. I heard her voice change tone. She cried and stammered, tormented, dominated by the irresistible order she had received. Oh, I beg you, if you only knew how much I'm suffering, I must have the money today. I took pity on her. You'll have it this afternoon, I swear to you. She cried out, oh, thank you, thank you, how good you are. I continued, do you remember what happened yesterday at your house? Yes. Do you remember that Dr. Parham put you to sleep? Yes. Well, he ordered you to come to me this morning to borrow five thousand francs from me. And you're obeying his suggestion right now. She thought for a few seconds, then she replied, 
but it's my husband who wants them. I tried to convince her for an hour, but didn't succeed. When she had left, I ran over to the doctor's. He was about to go out, and he listened to me smiling. Then he said, Do you believe now? Yes, I'm compelled to. Let's go to your cousin's. She was already napping on a chaise longue, overwhelmed with fatigue. The doctor took her pulse, looked at her for some time, then raised his hand over her eyes. Gradually they closed under the irresistible force of this magnetic power. When she had fallen asleep, your husband no longer needs the five thousand francs. You're going to forget that you begged your cousin to lend them to you. If he speaks to you about it, you will not understand. Then he woke her up. I took the wallet out of my pocket. Here, dear cousin, is what you asked me for this morning. She was so surprised that I didn't dare insist. I did try to revive her memory, but she strongly denied anything. Thought I was making fun of her, and in the end, almost became angry. There you have it. I have just returned. I couldn't eat lunch, so upsetting this experience was for me. Many people to whom I reported this adventure made fun of me. I no longer know what to think. The wise man says, perhaps. July 21st. I went out to dine in Bougival. Then I spent the evening at a dance at the rowing club. Decidedly, everything depends on places and environments. To believe in the supernatural on the Ile de la Grenouillère would be the height of folly, but on top of Mont Saint-Michel or in India, we are appallingly subject to the influence of our surroundings. I will return to my house next week. July the 30th. I've been back home since yesterday. Everything is fine. August the 2nd. Nothing new. The weather is superb. I spend my days watching the Seine flow by. August the 4th. Quarrels among the servants. They claim someone is breaking the glasses at night in the china closets. The valet blames the cook who blames the laundress who blames the other two. Who is guilty? Who can say in the end? August the 6th. This time. I'm not mad. I saw. I saw. I saw. I can no longer doubt. I saw. I am still cold down to my fingertips. I am still afraid to the marrow of my bones. I saw. I was taking a walk at two o'clock in the full sunlight in my rose garden, in the lane of autumn roses which are beginning to flower. As I was pausing to look at a géant de Bate, which bore three magnificent flowers, I saw, very distinctly, quite close to me, the stem of one of these roses bend itself, as if an invisible hand were twisting it, then break off, as if this hand had plucked it, then the flower rose up, following the curve an arm would have described when carrying it toward a mouth, and it remained suspended in the transparent air, all alone, immobile, a terrifying red shape three feet from my eyes. Agitated, I threw myself on it to seize it. I found nothing. It had disappeared. Then I was overcome with a furious rage at myself, for a reasonable serious man may not permit himself such hallucinations. But was this truly a hallucination? I turned back to look for the stem, and I found it immediately on the shrub, freshly broken, between the two other roses that remained on the branch. Then I returned to my house, my soul in turmoil, for I am certain now, certain as I am of the alternation of day and night, that there exists close to me an invisible being who feeds on milk and water, who can touch things, hold them, and make them change places. He is gifted, consequently, with a material nature though it is imperceptible to our senses, and he is living as I am, beneath my roof. August the 7th. I slept calmly. It drank the water from my carafe, but did not trouble my sleep at all. 
I wonder if I'm crazy. As I was walking just now in the full sunshine along the river, doubts about my reason came to me, not vague doubts as I've had till now, but precise, absolute doubts. I've seen madmen, I've known some, who remained intelligent, lucid, even perceptive about all matters of life except on one point. They speak of everything with clarity, agility and profundity, and suddenly, as their thoughts turn to the stumbling block of their madness, their thought processes shatter, scatter and sink into that terrifying and furious ocean full of leaping waves, fogs and squalls which we call dementia. Surely I would think myself crazy, absolutely crazy, if I weren't aware of my condition and if I weren't completely familiar with it, if I didn't probe it by means of the most complete and lucid analysis. So I am in fact just a rational person suffering from hallucinations. An unknown distress has been produced in my brain, one of those distresses that the physiologists of today try to observe and explain. This distress has established a profound divide in my mind, in the order and logic of my ideas. Similar phenomena occur in dreams, which parade us through the most implausible phantasmagoria without our being surprised, since the verifying apparatus, the sense of control, is asleep, while the imaginative faculty is awake and at work. Isn't it possible that one of those imperceptible keys on the cerebral keyboard has become paralysed in me? After an accident, people can lose their memory of proper names or verbs or numbers or just dates. The localizations of all those fragments of thought have now been proven. So what is so surprising about the fact that my faculty of controlling the unreality of certain hallucinations has been numbed in me for the moment? I was thinking about all of that as I followed the water's edge. The sun was coating the river with brightness, making the land delightful, filling my gaze with love for life. For the swallows, whose agility is a joy to my eyes, for the grasses on the shore, whose rustling is a delight to my ears. Little by little, however, an inexplicable uneasiness penetrated me. A force, it seemed to me, an occult force, was making me go numb, stopping me, preventing me from going further, was calling me back. I felt that painful need to return that oppresses you when you have left an ailing loved one at home, and you suddenly feel a premonition that the sickness has grown worse. So I returned despite myself, certain that I was going to find in my house some piece of bad news, a letter or a telegram. There was nothing there, yet I was more surprised and anxious than if it had been another fantastic vision. August the 8th. I had a frightful evening yesterday. It no longer manifests itself, but I feel it, close to me, spying on me, watching me, penetrating me, dominating me, being all the more dreadful by hiding itself than if it gave some sign of its invisible and constant presence by means of supernatural phenomena. Yet, I slept. August the 9th, nothing. But I'm afraid. August the 10th, nothing. What will happen tomorrow? August the 11th, still nothing. I can no longer remain at home with this fear and this thought always in my soul. I'm going to go away. August the 12th, 10 o'clock in the evening. All day I wanted to leave, but I couldn't. I wanted to perform this act of freedom that's so easy, so simple, going out, climbing to my carriage to go to Rouen, but I could not. Why? August 13th. When one is stricken with certain illnesses, all the resources of the physical being seem to be destroyed, all energies annihilated, all muscles limp. The bones seem to have become soft as flesh, and the flesh liquid as water. 
I am experiencing exactly that in my moral fibre, in a strange and distressing way. I have lost all strength, all courage, all self-control, even all power to put my will in motion. I can no longer want anything, but someone wants for me, and I obey. August the 14th, I'm lost. Someone possesses my soul and governs it. Someone controls all my actions, all my movements, all my thoughts. I'm nothing inside, nothing but a slave, spectator, terrified of all the things I do. I want to go out. I cannot. It doesn't want to. So I remain distraught, trembling, in the armchair where it's keeping me seated. I just want to get up to stand up just to believe I'm still master of myself. I can't. I'm riveted to my chair. My chair sticks to the floor so that no strength can raise us. Then, all of a sudden, I must. I must go to the back of my garden and pick strawberries and eat them. And I go. I pick strawberries and eat them. Oh, my God, my God, is there a God? If there is, set me free, save me, help me, forgive me, have pity on me, mercy, save me, save me from this suffering, this torture, this horror. August the 15th. Surely this is how my poor cousin was possessed and dominated when she came to borrow 5,000 francs from me. She was undergoing a strange will that had entered her like another soul, like a parasitic and dominating soul. Is the world about to end? But the one that is governing me, what is it? This invisible thing, this unknowable thing, this prowler from a supernatural race. So invisible beings do exist. But why haven't they ever revealed themselves in a clear way since the beginning of the world as they're doing for me? I've never read anything that resembles what has been going on in my house. If only I could leave it, if only I could go out, flee and not come back, I would be saved. But I cannot. August the 16th. I was able to escape today for two hours, like a prisoner who finds a door of his dungeon left open by chance. I felt I was free, all of a sudden, and that he was far away. I ordered the carriage to be harnessed quickly, and I reached Rouen. What joy it was to be able to say to someone else who obeys, go to Rouen. I had him stop in front of the library, and I asked him to lend me the great treatise by Dr. Hermann Herestaus on the unknown inhabitants of the ancient and modern world. Then... As I was climbing back into my carriage, I wanted to say, to the train station, but I shouted, not said, but shouted, in such a loud voice that a passerby turned round, Home! And I fell, stricken with anguish, onto the cushion of my car. He had found me, and recaptured me. August the 17th, what a night, what a night, and yet it feels as if I should rejoice, until one in the morning I read, Hermann Herestaus, the doctor of philosophy in Theogony, has written about the history and manifestations of all the invisible beings that prowl around mankind, or that we dream of. He describes their origins, their dwelling places, their powers. But not one of them resembles the one that's haunting me. We might reason that ever since man began to think, he has had a premonition and a dread of some new being, stronger than he, his successor in this world and that, feeling him nearby yet being unable to foresee the nature of this master, he has created in his terror the entire fantastic population of occult beings, vague phantoms born from fear. After reading till one in the morning, I went to sit down near my open window in order to cool my forehead and my thoughts in the calm night breeze. It was fine and warm out. How I would have loved this night once upon a time. No moon. The stars in the depths of the black sky twinkled quaveringly. 
Who lives in those worlds? What forms, what living beings, what animals, what plants are there? What do the sentient beings in those distant universes know more than we do? What more are they capable of doing than we? What do they see that we have not the least knowledge of? Some day or other won't one of them crossing space appear on our earth to conquer it, just as long ago the Normans crossed the sea to subjugate people who were weaker? We are so infirm, so helpless, so ignorant, so small, we others on this spinning grain of mud mixed with a drop of water. I dozed off musing like that in the cool evening wind. After sleeping for about forty minutes, though, I reopened my eyes without making a movement, awakened by some confused, strange emotion. At first I saw nothing, then, all of a sudden, it seemed to me that a page of the book that I had left open on my table had just turned, all by itself. No breath of air had entered through my window. I was surprised, and I waited. After about four minutes I saw, yes, I saw with my own eyes, another page rise up and fall back on the one before, as if a finger had turned it. My armchair was empty, seemed empty, but I understood that he was there, seated in my place, and that he was reading. With a furious leap, the leap of a rebellious animal who was about to disembowel his tamer, I crossed my room to seize and strangle him, kill him, but before I could reach it, my chair was knocked over, as if someone were fleeing before me. My table rocked back and forth, my lamp fell and went out, and my window slammed, as if a surprised thief had rushed out into the night, grabbing the shutters. So he had run away, he had been afraid, he afraid of me. Then, then tomorrow, or the day after, or some day, I'll be able to hold him in my fists and crush him to the ground. Don't dogs sometimes bite and choke their masters? August the 18th, I've been thinking all day. Oh yes, I will obey him, follow his impulses, accomplish all his wishes, make myself humble, submissive, cowardly. He is a stronger one, but a time will come. August the 19th. I know, I know, I know everything. I have just read this in the review de Mont Scientifique. A rather curious piece of news has reached us from Rio de Janeiro. A madness, an epidemic of madness, like the contagious dementias that attacked the population of Europe in the Middle Ages, is raging now in the province of Sao Paulo. The inhabitants distraught are leaving their houses, deserting their villages, abandoning their crops, claiming they are pursued, possessed, ruled like human livestock by invisible but tangible beings, sorts of vampires, which feed on their life while they sleep, and which drink water and milk without seeming to touch any other food. Professor Don Pedro Enriquez, accompanied by several learned doctors, has left for the province of São Paulo in order to study on-site the origins and manifestations of this surprising madness, and to suggest to the emperor the measures he thinks best suited to restore these delirious populations to reason. And now I remember it. I remember the fine Brazilian three-master that passed by my windows as it went up the Seine, last May the 8th, and I thought it was so pretty, so white, so cheerful. The being was on it, coming from down there where his race was born, and he saw me. He saw my white house too, and he jumped from the ship onto the shore. Oh my God! Now I know, I have guessed. The reign of mankind is over. He has come. The one the primal terrors of primitive tribes dreaded, 
the one anxious priests exorcised, the one magician summoned on dark nights without ever seeing him appear, the one to whom the premonitions of adepts wandering through the world attributed all the monstrous or gracious forms of gnomes, spirits, genies, fairies, elves. After the coarse imaginings of primitive horror, more perspicacious men had a clearer presentiment of him. Mesmer guessed his existence, and for ten years now, doctors have discovered in an accurate way the nature of his power before he himself ever exercised it. They have played with this weapon of the new lord, the domination of a mysterious will over a human soul which turns into a slave. They called it magnetism, hypnotism, suggestion. What do I know? I have seen them amuse themselves like foolish children with this terrible power. We are cursed. Mankind is cursed. He has come. The, the, what's his name? The, he seems to be shouting out his name to me, and I cannot hear it. The, yeah, yes, he's shouting it. I'm trying to hear. I can't. Again, the hauler. I heard the hauler. It is he, the hauler. He has come. Now, the vulture has eaten the dove, the wolf has eaten the lamb, the lion has devoured the sharp-horned buffalo. The man has killed the lion with the arrow, with the sword, with powder. But the hauler will make man into what we made, the horse and the steer, his thing, his servant, and his food. By the simple power of his will, our woe is upon us. But the animal sometimes rebels and kills the ones who tamed him. I too want to do this, I could. But I must recognize him, touch him, see him. Scholars say that the eyes of an animal, different from our own, cannot distinguish objects as our eyes do. And my eyes cannot distinguish this newcomer who oppresses me. Why? Now I remember the words of the monk of Mont Saint-Michel. Do we see the hundred thousandth part of what exists? Look, here is the wind, which is the strongest force in nature, which knocks men down, destroys buildings, uproots trees, whips the sea into mountains of water, destroys cliffs and throws great ships onto the shoals. Here is the wind that kills, whistles, groans, howls. Have you ever seen it? And can you see it? Yet it exists. And I thought further. My eye is so weak, so imperfect, that I cannot even make out solid objects if they are transparent as glass. If a two-way mirror bars my way, it knocks me down, just as a bird who has flown into a room breaks his neck on the window panes. A thousand other things deceive our sight and lead it astray. What is so surprising about our not knowing how to perceive a new body, one that light can pass through? A new being? Why not? Surely it had to come. Why should we be the last people? If we can't distinguish him, as we can all the other creatures before us, it's because his nature is more perfect, his body finer and more absolute than ours, which is so weak, so clumsily conceived, encumbered with organs that are always weary, always strained, like machinery that's too complex. Our body, which lives like a plant, like an animal, feeding with difficulty on air, grass and meat. An animal machine, prey to sicknesses, deformations, putrefactions, short-winded, unstable, simple and strangely, naively, poorly made. A coarse and delicate work, a rough outline of a being that could become intelligent and superb. There are just a few of us in this world, so few species between oysters and men. Why not one more entity now that the era is over when all the various species appeared in orderly succession? Why not one more? And why not other trees with immense dazzling flowers perfuming entire regions? 
And why not other elements besides fire, air, earth and water? There are four of them, just four, those foster parents of beings. What a pity. Why aren't there 40 elements instead? Or 400? Or 4,000? How paltry everything is, how miserly, how wretched. Stingily given, aridly invented, heavily made. Look at the elephant, the hippopotamus, such grace. The camel, such elegance. But you'll say, what about the butterfly? A flower that flies. I dream of one that would be as large as a hundred universes, with wings whose shape, beauty, colour, and movement I cannot even describe. But I can see it. It goes from star to star, refreshing them and soothing them with the harmonious and light breath of its journey. And the people's up there, ecstatic and ravished, watch it go by. What is wrong with me? It is he, the hauler, who's haunting me, making me think these mad thoughts. He's inside me. He is becoming my soul. I will kill him. August the 19th, I will kill him. I've seen him. I had sat down at my table last night and I pretended to write with great concentration. I was well aware that he would come prowl around me quite close, so close that I might perhaps be able to touch him, to seize him, and then, and then I would have the strength of the desperate. I would have my hands, my knees, my chest, my forehead, my teeth to strangle him, crush him, bite him, tear him apart. And I watched for him with all my overexcited organs. I had lit both my lamps along with the eight candles on my mantelpiece, as if, in this brightness, I might expose him. Opposite me, my bed, an old oaken four-poster. To my right, my fireplace. To my left, my door, which I had carefully shut, after having left it open for a long time, in order to lure him in. Behind me, a very high wardrobe with a mirror, which I used every day to shave and dress, and in which I had the habit of looking at myself from head to foot every time I passed in front of it. I was just pretending to write in order to trick him, for he too was spying on me. Suddenly I felt I was sure that he was reading over my shoulder, that he was there grazing my ear. I stood up with my hands outstretched, turning round so quickly that I almost fell down, and everything there was as clear as in full daylight, but I could not see myself in my mirror. It was empty, clear, profound, full of light, my image was not inside it, yet I myself was facing it. I could see the large clear glass from top to bottom. I looked at it with terrified eyes, but dared not move forward. I did not dare to make any movement, fully aware that he was there, but that he would escape me again, he whose imperceptible body had devoured my reflection. I was terrified, then suddenly I began to see myself in a mist, in the depths of the mirror, in a mist as if through a sheet of water. It seemed to me that this water shimmered from left to right, slowly making my image more precise from second to second. It was like the end of an eclipse. Whatever was obscuring me seemed not to possess any clearly defined outlines, but just a sort of opaque transparency, little by little becoming clearer. Finally, I could distinguish myself completely, just as I do every day when I look at myself. I had seen him. The terror of it has remained with me and makes me tremble still. August the 20th. How can I kill him if I can't touch him? Poison? But he would see me mixing it in the water. And besides, will our poisons even have any effect on an imperceptible body? No, no, they cannot. What then? 
August the 21st. I have had a locksmith come from Rouen and ordered iron shutters in my bedroom, the kind certain mansions have in Paris on the ground floor, because of fear of thieves. He will also make me a door of the same material. I let him think me a coward, but I don't care. September the 10th, Rouen, Hotel Continental. It is done, it is done, but is he dead? My soul is in turmoil over what I have seen. Yesterday, after the locksmith had installed my iron shutters and door, I left everything open until midnight, although it was beginning to turn cold. All of a sudden I felt that he was there, and a joy, a mad joy, seized me. I rose up slowly and paced back and forth for a long time, so that he wouldn't guess anything was amiss. Then I took off my shoes and nonchalantly put on my slippers. Then I closed the iron shutters, and quietly walking to the door, closed it too with a double turn of the lock. Then I came back to the window, locked it with the padlock, and put the key in my pocket. All of a sudden I knew that he was getting agitated near me, that it was his turn to be afraid that he was commanding me to open the window. I almost gave in. I did not give in. Instead, leaning back against the door, I half opened it, just enough to let me slip through backwards. Since I am very tall, my head touched the lintel. I was certain he had been unable to escape, and I shut him in, all alone, all alone. At last I had him. Then I ran downstairs, I picked up both the lamps in my drawing room, which was underneath my bedroom, and poured out all the oil onto the rug, the furniture everywhere. Then I set fire to it, and I ran out, after having carefully closed the large front door with a double turn of the lock. I ran to the back of my garden to hide in a clump of bay trees. How long it took, how long it took. Everything was dark, silent, motionless, not a breath of air, not a star just mountains of clouds that couldn't be seen, but that weighed so heavy, so heavy on my soul. I watched my house and I waited. How long it took. I was beginning to think the fire had put itself out, or that he had put it out. He, when one of the windows on the ground floor caved in under the pressure from the fire, and the flame, a huge red and yellow flame, tall, soft, caressing, soared up along the white wall and kissed it all the way up to the roof. A glow ran through the trees, the branches, the leaves, and a shiver, a shiver of fear, too. The birds woke up, a dog began to bark. It looked as if dawn were breaking. Immediately two other windows shattered, and I saw that the entire ground floor of my house was nothing more than a terrifying inferno. But a scream, a horrible high-pitched penetrating scream, a woman's scream, rent the night, and two garret windows opened. I had forgotten my servants. I saw their terrified faces and their waving arms. Then, beside myself with horror, I began to run towards the village, shouting, Help! Help! Fire! Fire! I met some people who were already on the way, and I went back with them to see. The house now was nothing more than a terrible and magnificent pyre, a monstrous pyre, illuminating all the land around, a pyre where people were burning and where he was burning too. He, he, my prisoner, the new being, the new master, the hauler. Suddenly, the entire roof caved in between the walls and a volcano of flame shot up to the sky. Through all the windows opening onto the furnace, I could see the pit of fire, and I thought about him in there, in his oven, dead. Dead! Maybe not. What about his body? It wasn't his body which daylight could go right through, indestructible by all the methods that kill our own bodies. What if he wasn't dead? Maybe only time holds sway over that invisible and dreadful being. 
Why should this body, this transparent, this unknowable body, this spirit body, have to fear illnesses, wounds, infirmities, and premature destruction? Premature destruction. All the horrors of humanity stem from that alone. After mankind, the hauler. After our race that can die any day, at any hour, at any minute, from any number of accidents has come that one, who will only die on his day, at his hour, at his minute, when he has reached the term of his existence. No, no, of course not, of course he's not dead. So then, it's me, it's me that I have to kill. May 1887 Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come dies. back. Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Welcome to episode 35 of the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. I've decided to be a bit more organized this week, and if you listen to the podcast, you will know that quite often I just ramble on. Well, I've decided what I'm going to do this week, and henceforth, is I'm going to write down the notes, and I'm going to speak from the notes, so it'll be more structured. That's the theory anyway. This week, we're doing a story um, by a French author. It's from French, translated into English. And you remember last week I did uh, Alexander Pushkin's The Queen of Spades, so I'm keeping with this European theme for a while anyway. Um, And leaving Great Britain, Ireland, and America, and going to the continent of Europe. So there we are. Um, This is a good story. It's a long story. It's quite one of the longest we've done. It's just short of an hour without the commentary. So the first thing I want to say is I've been reading up on podcasts, and I'm supposed to do a call to action at the beginning and then repeat it at the end. And instead of just asking you to do loads of things like go to the website, um, support me on Patreon, buy me a cup of coffee and stuff like that, I, in fact, I've just asked one thing, and hopefully this will be easy and simple and will not inconvenience you at all. If it does, please forgive me and forget I've even asked you. But what would be great would be if you know, if you've got a friend or a family member or an acquaintance or somebody you met in the library or on the bus or at Subway one afternoon and you fell into conversation with them, then if you just were to recommend this classic ghost stories podcast to them, even better send them a link. But if you can't do that because it's inconvenient, because, you know, but these days, of course, you do, we do have, we have phones and things everywhere. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? If you could just recommend it to one person and one person only this week, then we would double in size. Can you imagine that? I can. I just makes me not able to sleep, actually. I get so excited about it. But if you could do that, you'd be really helpful to me in the podcast because the podcast has become a separate entity like I segue neatly into the hauler. Now, one of the things I've got to say is in French, it is l'orla, l'orla. But um, I decided to pronounce it with the H because it's a completely made-up word anyway. So I can pronounce it how I want. And Guy de Montbasson is dead. Sad to say, but it would be very old by now anyway. Guy de Maupassant is considered the father of the short story form. He came from, uh, he was French, clearly. Uh, he was born in 1850, published his first short story in 1880, uh, The Boule de Suif, and it's a story set in the Franco-Prussian War about the Prussian invasion of France. It's a really good story, actually. Uh, but he, he was a friend of Gustave Flaubert, the other 
and the other, <laughs> one of uh, the fantastic French writers, Madame Bovary, etc., etc. So, uh, you know, he, he was well-connected and well and highly and rightly highly regarded. He also suffered from a mental illness and it is thought that he used his experiences when he was writing the hauler, uh, drawn from his own experience of being mentally ill. Now, it's very interesting. Of course, when he wrote it, he wasn't mentally ill. He was just he was uh, digging through his experiences to, to write down. And um, from a professional point of view, because you remember this is what I do um, in my proper job, is um, I can see this, certainly some of the features he describes you would see as a severe case of anxiety. But of course, when people become very anxious or they can get um, or very depressed or a million other causes, actually, they can become psychotic and then they get clearly incorrect ideas. Well, we hope they're clearly incorrect. Some of them with a paranoid flavor, often about control. Many psychotic people have ideas that, you know, the CIA or the KGB or, or aliens or some shadowy, Power, powerful and in the shadows force is controlling them. And this is exactly what we get here um, in this case. And then usually what happens is people have what they call the, the psychotic insights. So the first thing is bang, they have this strong feeling that this is true. And, then, and that's irrational, clearly. But then they construct rationality around it and they make the rest of this. The rest of the story follows perfectly naturally from the first insane insight. So that you're being possessed by, by an invisible superior form of creature is the first thing, which is, you know, psychotic. And then th this creature has the power of mesmerism. Well, we, they, in, because mesmerism had been discovered in those, in those days, it was a big thing in the 19th century. And so, uh, and then you have, you know, Freud and Chaco and people like that talking about the unconscious mind. So this is a big thing, mesmerism. So that's, yay, this creature has a power which is scientifically explained. And it's also come from Brazil. And so there's an epidemic of this, some kind of psychic vampire that drinks milk and water, which apparently is a guaranteed weight loss diet. But I'm not sure that Guy de Maupassant knew that. It's a bit later than that. There's also a vampire film made in 2014 called Milk and, Milk and Water, where the vampires, I'm sniggering slightly, are vegetarian. I'm not sniggering vegetarianism. My daughters are vegetarians, but um, so I have high respect for that, But um, although I'm not myself. And um, yeah, vegetarian vampires, who'd have thought it? There's this idea of humanity being superseded is also crops up in 19th century literature. If you think of H.G. Wells, the English writer, you've got Time Machine, where he goes to the future and he sees the Morlocks and the, I can't remember what the other ones are called, but the beautiful ones who are the prey of these horrible, nasty things that live underground. Um, and then what we've got is... Um, the War of the Worlds, when the Martians are coming to replace us. Another a thought that strikes me is I've read a couple of stories like this that are about a first-person narrative of somebody who's fairly crazy. So one of them is, of course, the yellow wallpaper. It has a lot of similarities with Charlotte Perkins Gilman. I read that. That was the first one ever uh, that we read. And it has a lot of similarities with this story in that we're not completely sure whether the narrator is really being... Um, haunted, threatened by a supernatural being, 
the hauler in this one or the, the thing from the wallpaper, the crouching thing from the wallpaper in, in Charlotte Perkins Gilman's story, or they're just, you know, psychotic. I think with the yellow wallpaper, I came down to say, yeah, she probably is psychotic and that's it. With this, of course, he, he definitely has these visions of uh, things moving, uh, which of course could be psychotic as well. So um, yeah, are they monsters or are they just figments of their, their crazy minds? The other one, of course, where we have a totally crazy is The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe, which is very over the top, very dramatic. They're quite fun to read these, these stories with the insane narrator because you get to just go a bit, bit um, <laughs> flamboyant in them. So there we are. The only thing I would say, of course, is when our narrator here from the hauler burns his house down, he sees he's burned his servants alive and there's three or four of them because there's a valet and a cook and all these things. He's obviously a well-off guy as well um, and they'd burn and he's marginally upset about this, but. Uh, that isn't his main concern, so um, draw what you will from that. Coming to the end of the commentary, we see that, um, thank you for listening. If you check out on the Facebook page, and if you are in the UK, you see him doing a, a live event at a haunted castle near Carlisle in Cumbria, in the north of England on the Scottish borders, and uh, that's going to be in March. So check out that link on the show notes if you fancy coming along to that and having a tour of the castle. Um, probably going to have some tarot readings. I'm going to do some stories. And there's a three-course dinner. How about that? And you can stay in the haunted room. How perfect. Not for me, though, because I want to sleep. I'm going to go home. Okay, thanks again for your support for the podcast. If you could just share it by word of mouth or by electronic hyperlink to somebody that you know, you don't even have to like them very much, to be honest, as long as you think they like the story, like the podcast. Anyway. Till next week, I've got in mind I'm going to do something European, but you know, contact... Oh, that's another call to action. I mustn't say that. I was going to say, if you wanted to contact me and make a suggestion, that would also be good, but I can't really say that because it's a second call to action. And the, the, the webpage I was reading says only one, which is share the podcast. So ignore that request for requests. Okay. All right. Next week, possibly another European story. I've been reading one about Venice that I sort of liked and then I went off as it went on. As a story, as I got more into the story, I thought, ah, it's a bit long and it, it's got a lovely description. But anyway, what's the point of me telling you about this? Because I'm not going to read it. Bye anyway. <laughs>